John chapter 2, verse 12 is where we'll begin reading. John has been called um, the thinking man's gospel. And that's not because it requires some superior intellect to understand the gospel of John. Thankfully so for me. Um, but it's because the the more you look at the this gospel account, the more you examine the person of Jesus Christ as he's, as he's revealed in these pages, and the more you think upon this, the the just the the more you see we get to see more and more of Jesus and the depth of who he is just becomes greater and greater this is why an unbeliever or a new believer goes to the gospel of John and 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 is is immediately impacted by the just the this this revelation of Jesus Christ and it it's just it it blows the mind and yet and yet for the for those who are in Christ for years and years and decades they they can continue to go and to go to John and to see more of Jesus the deeper you look the more you see of him and so I pray that that would be true for us today as we're just singing show us Christ I pray that for every single person here we would see more and more of Jesus today and as we've said that seeing him we will believe more deeply in him and have life in his name. John chapter 2, verse 12 is where we'll pick up today. We were looking last week, uh, Jesus went to Cana with his disciples, met his mother there, and they were there for a wedding, probably a friend of the family, and he performed the miracle of turning the water into the wine, and then we get to verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. This is just kind of a transitional verse here. We're not going to linger on this. But he's, so he's, he, he leaves and goes north from, uh, from Cana to the north side of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, not, not too far of a journey. A one day journey to go there. And this is the home of Peter and Andrew. And, and so he goes there and, 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 and with his mother and Brothers, this is the last time we see uh, his mother, Mary, until we get to the crucifixion of Christ, in the, in the, according to the Gospel of John, anyway. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Well, many of you have read um, or read to your children the C.S. Lewis's um, series, The Chronicles of Narnia. These are fantasy stories that are filled with all kinds of um, themes and doctrines that come right out of Scripture, these subtle references to these 
themes of scripture. And there's, there's a scene in the voyage of the Don Treader that touches on our passage today. And, um, and it's a scene. There's, it's Lucy, Edmund, and Eustace. They're leaving the, the Don Treader and they're going to shore on Narnia and to, to begin exploring Narnia. And they see this large grassy area. And, and, and off in the distance of this grassy area, they see this white speck. And so they move toward it to and see what this is. And they get closer and they realize it's a lamb. And, and they, they move closer and it's not just a lamb as they get closer. They realize it's a talking lamb. This is Narnia. And it's not just a talking lamb. It's a talking lamb that's cooking breakfast. And, um, so they, they move in and, and the, the, the lamb, of course, in, this series, it represents Christ in the scene. And the, and the scene is one that recalls the time after the resurrection of Jesus when he's on the seashore preparing breakfast for his disciples, cooking fish over an open fire for the disciples. That's what's pictured here. And so the lamb here in the, in, in, in the Narnia book, the lamb gives the cooked fish to the trio here and they eat it and it is wonderful to them and they're enjoying this food and they begin to engage the lamb in conversation about their journey to, to the, the, their trip to the land of Aslan. And as the lamb begins to talk with them and explain the way there, C.S. Lewis writes this, he says, his snowy white flushed into tawny gold and his size changed and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. The lamb was the lion. And as we move from Cana and well, from what we've seen so far in, in the Gospel of John, from from behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then he goes to Cana and this is joyous occasion and he turns water into wine and rescues this celebration, pointing to the fact, the joy of salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. But as we as we move that, then we go to the temple and the lamb becomes a lion and he roars this, and this scene illustrates something that not just children need to get and to meditate upon, but all of us need to. And it's this, is that, 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 that Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, bears both the character of the lamb and of the lion. And he's innocent and he's gentle like a lamb, but he's, he's powerful and he's regal like a lion. And it's important that we get this because we live in a culture, and more particularly a, a Christian subculture, that, that does everything it can to minimize, uh, the, the, the lion part of Jesus. And, but we, if we fall to that propaganda, what we find ourselves doing is really, is really worshiping a Jesus who doesn't exist. We're believing a myth. We're following a unicorn. It's, it's not real. That's not who Christ is. And so my aim today, in part, is to bring a kind of a needed balance, I think, to, to understanding Jesus, to the picture that most, that many people have of Jesus. And certainly not wrong to picture Jesus as the Lamb. Again, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world out of the mouth of John the Baptist. So Jesus is the Lamb of God, that's true. But he's also the lion and we'll, again, we'll hear him roar, see him roar in the passage this morning. Lions are scary. You know, we went to the circus this last year. At Phillips Arena and, and, 
you know, they have, they try to, many of the acts are just fun and playful. And then the other, there's other acts that are trying to, to, to make you scared and to f- feel the terror of what these performers are doing. And I mean, there's the, the globe of steel or thunder or whatever they call it. They got the motorcycles in that cage or whatever. They're racing around in there. I mean, I can take a nap during that. I mean, that doesn't bother me. Um, and, and it's neat and I'm sure it's scary and it's, but man versus machine doesn't do much for me, but man versus lion, when they get the lion tamer out there this time, I mean, there are all these giant cats, lions and tigers. There's like a dozen of these things in this net netted area. And it's just the tamer in there. And they, of course, it's probably part of the act. But they seem like they're out of control. Like they're not listening to him. And they keep snapping at him and roaring at him. And, and I mean, I'm on the edge of my seat. And I'm sweating bullets and thinking I'm ready to hide my kids' faces in case this, this is about to get bloody and violent. Um, but but this, is, this, is, this is a lamb a, a, or a lion. It's, it represents power, authority. It's, it's, it's unstoppability. And... And so we leave Cana, as I said, verse 12, we leave Cana, Jesus goes to Capernaum for just a brief stop, and then he, along with so many others, head to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now what happens in Jerusalem presents us with, presents us with a little bit of a problem, and I put problem in air quotes here, because it's not really a problem, but some people think it's a problem, and it's this, is that all four gospel accounts have the cleansing of the temple, Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though, they say it's one of the very last things Jesus did. After his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he goes to the temple and he cleans it out. Final week of his ministry. What does John say? No, it happens at the very beginning of his ministry. This is one of the first things he did. Now, this is not a problem because it's not rocket science either. What we see here is there are two different cleansings. This is, it's not hard to see in the text because they're, they're very different circumstances. There's different timing, obviously, that we see recorded. There's different response from Jesus in each, in each of the two cleansings. And there's a very different outcome between the two cleansings. So, I mean, there may have been more than two cleansings. I mean, every year Jesus would have probably gone to Jerusalem for the Passover. He may have cleaned it out other times, but we have two that are recorded for us. And, and, and so this is separate from those others. This is at the front end of his ministry. And with that out of the way, we're, we, what we want to do here is behold, behold the lion who takes away the clutter of the temple. And that's what we see here. And the first thing, just going to say two statements about the lion, Jesus Christ here. And the first thing that we'll see is the lion roars. The lion roars. He roars, he roars when his father's house is in disorder. He roars when the Lord's worship is, is cluttered. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Most of you know this, but whenever you go to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem. That's not, that's true topographically because it sat on, at a higher elevation. So wherever you were coming from, you were going to be coming from a valley moving up to Jerusalem. But it's true theologically as well. That's how people understood that Jerusalem was the focal point of God's redemptive plan and of life for and, and of religion. And so everybody goes up to Jerusalem no matter which direction you're coming from. And they're going up to Jerusalem for the Passover. What an exciting time to be a Jew. Passover. This is, I mean, this was huge for the life of, of, of Israel, in, in Israel. 
Preparations were made for weeks, months ahead of this. All of the roads were repaired. All the bridges were repaired. All of the, everything that could be whitewashed. All of the graveyards and cemeteries, those tombs were whitewashed. Everything made nice and clean and new. Everything was, was, was spiffed up for the Passover. If this was a, a theater production, what we would see when Jesus walks into the scene in, in, in John 2, what, when he would walk on the stage, when he would walk onto this very happy scene. I mean, you have these pilgrims that have streamed in from all over the place into Jerusalem. Long journeys, families going in, people being reunited, old friends and family connecting and bumping into one another and catching up and, 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 and you have singing and dancing and eating and, and, and drinking and laughter and all of these things. This is the scene that, that's there in Jerusalem. This nationalistic pride at a fever pitch, kind of like our 4th of July celebrations, perhaps. And so loud, lively, full of energy, anticipation, excitement. This is, this is the scene. Now, Jerusalem was not that large of a city. It was probably around 25,000 plus inhabitants normally, but at Passover, everything changed. I mean, this city just swelled. They, Estimates between, I mean, as low as 250,000, which is still incredible, but as high as 2 million people, depending on the year, that would be there for the Passover. So imagine Jesus then and his disciples walking on this road from Capernaum to Jerusalem with thousands of other pilgrims. And as they get closer, other roads from other cities and villages begin to converge and, and, and they just get congested. And as they get closer and they reach the city gates, the streets are even more clogged. And, 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 and as they approach the temple, they, you can hardly move. There's so many people moving towards the temple. And the senses are just overwhelmed. All of the sights and sounds and smells and tastes in the air and just bumping of things you're feeling and people selling food and trinkets and souvenirs and laughter and animal noises and music and just on and on. Just an, um, this incredible scene. And if Jesus and his disciples, they finally make it to the temple entrance. In verse 14. And in the temple, he found. What did he find? He find fervent worshipers. Did he find hands lifted in praise and prayer to the Lord? Did he find people confessing their own sins and the sins of the nation? Did he find this people expressing hope for anticipation, longing for the Messiah? Did he find songs of deliverance? Did he find Gentiles being saved? You know, he walks into the largest and outermost courtyard of the temple, the court of the Gentiles. And he finds a flea market. It's this religious circus. It's just complete pandemonium. Verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And instead of hearing heartfelt prayers, he hears the this huckstering of these People selling animals and haggling over the weight of coins, that kind of stuff. This is what he walks into. Everywhere he turns, he's these frantic merchants trying to make a buck off of these pilgrims that have made their long journeys to worship at the temple. What in the world is going on? What, what happened? How did it get like this? I just, just kind of explain what, how it got to this place. 
I mean, Jews were required to bring animal sacrifices to worship during the Passover, oxen and sheep. Now, it's not easy to bring an oxen from Egypt, as you can imagine, or a sheep all the way from Italy or something. So you have these people coming from all over the place, bringing their animals. And so so probably originally animals were made available for purchase just for convenience. Take or think if your animal dies on the way. Uh, get sick and dies, but whatever. So they, they make these animal, they made these animals available for purchase at a fair price so they could be sacrificed and worshiped to the Lord. Nothing wrong with that. And yeah, the money changers, probably the same, same thing. There was a half shekel temple tax that was paid by each Jew and, and, and it couldn't be paid with Roman coins. You had the, the, the symbol of this, this paganism stamped on these Roman coins. So that wouldn't work. So there was probably a service, a system put in place that you could exchange your pagan money for Jewish coins and at a fair price. And so that was, that was nothing wrong with that. But what Jesus saw when he walked into the temple that day was far, uh, from anything that re- resembled those maybe noble beginnings. By Jesus' day, all of these practices were just driven by greed. It was, it was, it amounted to extortion. Behind all of this was the former high priest, Annas. Annas is, is, is his son-in-law as high priest at this time, Caiaphas. But his father-in-law is still alive and he's still behind the scenes and, and, and he was a wicked, wicked man. The, 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 Many at this time called the temple the bazaars of Annas. He was the one responsible for for this scene. He, he and and he was still behind the scenes, still profiting from all of this. And so, at one as time went on, as things would happen, the selling of animals and the exchanging of money, it became this lucrative business. And so, again, these exorbitant prices. And so, a nickel a nickel pigeon might cost. Four dollars or something like that. And, and the, and, and the exchange rate for a half shekel was, it's recorded that it was like two hours of pay. So if you had two shekels, that's a full day's pay just for the fee to exchange that money. And so it's just this racket. And, and initially all of this took place outside of the temple, across the, outside the eastern gate of the temple, across the Kidron Valley. And so that's where the, these marketplace was kind of set up, but it's a hassle to drag those animals down the valley, up the hill to the temple. And so Annas decides, you know, let's just bring it into the temple. And, and I see a possible, see some potential here. The vendors can pay us for space. And they make a profit. We charge a fee, kind of like selling franchises. Everybody wins. And also, this was a reality, that for, a, for an animal to be approved for sacrifice, he had to pass inspection. So there were these official temple animal inspectors. And guess what? They didn't tend to pass those that brought their own animals. They said, no, it's not going to do it. It's unclean. But, they, but the ones that they were selling, now those come pre-approved. And so those are good. So it became futile. Why bring an animal? You know, it's going to be rejected. I'm going to have to buy one anyway. So it's just, just how it was. Everybody's paying upward. Animal sellers, they're overcharging big time so they can make a profit and pay above them and, and the money changers are doing the exact same thing. Everybody's making big bucks and yet the worshipers are just getting pilfered. And so this, this in itself is unconscionable. The systematic exploitation of these worshipers 
is, is awful. But what really makes this awful is where this is happening. In God's temple. Even if the, even if the businesses were legitimate, even if they were above board, the selling of these animals, exchanging of money, it shouldn't be happening in the temple walls. And, and here's the thing, every, everybody seems okay with this. This is just the way things were. This is the status quo that everybody's come to accept and everybody's just doing it. This is how it is. And I, and I don't doubt at all that it was this slow creep that got to this point. One small, subtle compromise at a time. Just It became, though, this full-blown just display of greed and awfulness in the temple. Nobody's bothered by this scene. Nobody noticed how outrageous this was, except Jesus. He saw it. He saw it for what it was. I was just by way of application, just think about it. Are there things in your life, are there things in our church that we've slowly become comfortable with, but that Jesus would just be outraged over? And we were looking at these letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 on Sunday nights. And this is part of the process. We're going through this kind of evaluation for church, Vision 2020, and looking to the future. What, where, where do we need to change, Lord? What's, where are we doing well? What are we doing wrong? How can we grow? So we're, we're looking at these letters. What does Jesus say about the church in these letters? Well, what would he say about our church if he wrote a letter to us? What would he say? What would he say about our sincerity? What would he say about our attitude towards the Lord's Day Assembly? What would he say about our worship? Corporate, private. What would he say about how we treat one another in the assembly? What would he say about how we regard his word? What What would he say about how we express our dependence upon him through fasting and prayer? What would he say? Would he be pleased with our heart for the lost? What would Jesus say about our church? Are, are we, have we become comfortable? Can we, are these slow, small, subtle compromises that we may have made that, and we should be outraged, but yet we've, we've become okay with it. And I think nobody was too bothered by this crazy scene that we see, and I'm trying to paint for you in, in the temple there, because it was all stuff that was related to the worship of God. It was, it was, it was about the service of the temple. They're not selling golden calves. No, they're, they're selling animals for sacrifice. There's all kinds of religious stuff here. There's all kinds of God talk. It all has religious, uh, this religious veneer over everything. And, and, and just, there's a warning there for us. We too, we can overlook things in our lives because of all of the trappings, Christian trappings and worship trappings. That we see, we know the talk, we know how to play the part of a worshiper. But we can merely be holding to a form of godliness while denying its power. As Paul warns Timothy. These people are very comfortable with the status of God's temple. And we would have been too. Don't, don't poke them and say, what, buffoons? How did you not see this? We would have been right there with them. But what we're not comfortable with, if we're honest, is Jesus' response to this scene. Verse 15. And making a whip of cords. Jesus makes a whip. 
He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Calm down, Jesus. As a friend to friend, this is probably how we would talk to him. Just put the whip down and let's talk about this. You're making a scene. And some have tried to water down the intensity of Christ here in this scene. Let me just read what one writer said about this. This is crazy. Catching up some of the reeds that served as bedding for the cattle. He twisted them into the semblance of a scourge. Which could hurt neither man nor beast. He did not use it. Oh, that's sweet. I was... I would, we were at the soccer game yesterday in Tyrone and I told, I told Micah I was going to use him as an illustration today. Micah Kell, uh, he was running around and, um, he had picked up some tall grass, dead, you know, brown straw and he was coming up behind me and whipping me with this straw and of course I couldn't even feel it. Uh, but I've, I acted like I could. I acted like I was in pain and he was chasing me around with this straw. Well, that's not this scene. Um, Jesus reached down, so he picks up some cords, he begins knotting them together, and then he just cleans house. I mean, I try to picture what this would have seemed like. What, what did Jesus look like? Waving this around. He must have looked seven feet tall. Tables crashing. Money just jangling across the floor of the temple. Animals trampling over things and people probably. People getting hurt. Pigeons flapping, flying everywhere. And cages being toppled off. And then those the sellers and the money changers and those inspectors of the animals just running. Pushing people out of their way to get away from this madman. It doesn't exactly fit the picture we have of Jesus meek and mild, does it? This is Jesus indignant, angry, full of the swelling, burning, white-hot anger. He's not being polite. He's not being nice about all of this. He doesn't, he doesn't ask, would you mind please moving the animals outside of the temple? Could you take your boxes of coins and outside the city of gates? Thank, thank you very much. I'm sorry to be an inconvenience to you. This is not it. Now Jesus is meek and mild. He is gentle. He's, his power is under control. It's under restraint. That's what gentleness means. And we can look at many verses of scripture and t- that testify to the, the, to the gentleness of our Savior. But you have to integrate that with pictures like this of Jesus. And this isn't the only one. Jesus, this isn't the only place Jesus is angry. You, just a few examples. In Mark chapter 3 verse 5, there's the man that's with the paralyzed hand and, and the, and Jesus looks around, all these people are questioning, is he gonna ha- is he gonna heal on the Sabbath? There's this trick, they're trying to set him up. You know what Jesus, the text says that Jesus looked around at them with anger. And he grieved at their hardness of heart. In, in Luke chapter 13 verse 32, there's this, there's this fierce message to Herod. You go tell that fox. That's not some attractive babe or something. 
Or this response to Peter, get behind me, Satan. I don't think that meek and mild comes to mind when we see Jesus' words to the Pharisees in the end of Matthew. You whitewashed tombs, you hypocrites. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape the sentence of hell? Kent Hughes, in in light of this passage, he says, You can tell as much about a man by his hatreds as by his loves. And we can tell a lot about Jesus by what he hates. His hatred of this corruption reveals his love for what's being corrupted. And that's what Jesus says. He says, in verse 16, Take these things away. Why? Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus' love for his father's house. His father's house is the temple. It's the place to know, to love, to treasure a person. His father. God. Psalm 84, 11, A day in his courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. This is what Jesus is saying. This is my father's house. This is what this is to be about. God's design for this temple is for, is for worship and prayer and sacrifice to meet with God, to seek his face. He's turned this into a house of trade. This is a place of profit now. He's outraged. This veneer of religion and worship is being used to just, to just cover up greed. And what Jesus is reacting against is that. It's this hypocrisy of it all. He sees, he rages when he sees his godliness used as a means of of just covering up their own self-gratification, selfish desires. I mean, we, we can look all around us where we live. And we see it with these prosperity gospel preachers and teachers. I'm sick of it. I'm watching so many in our community. I'm watching so many in my own neighborhood that are being preyed upon by these just peddlers and hucksters of this false gospel. They have Creflo Dollar right down the street. It's where almost probably half of my neighbors say they go there. I don't know if they actually go there, but he's, he's the anus of world changers. And he posted on social media a few weeks ago, and this was... Noted by several periodicals. and This is what he said. Jesus bled and died for us so that we can lay claim to the promise of financial prosperity. Hashtag prosperity in Christ. Hashtag wealthy living. Hashtag abundant life. (laughs) Driving to Tyrone, we drove. I I was taking back roads that I don't even know. And I don't know how to get those roads. I thankfully got behind Debbie Lute as she was driving to the same game. And so I'm following her. And I, I look, uh, there's, there's Creflo's place. I'm, I'd seen it before, but it's been a long time. And I'm kind of trying to keep up with her and trying to look back. I'm telling you, I'm thinking about this passage. It's angry. It's not because he has a big house. and That's not it at all. It's because I know what he says. You're going you're gonna to tell people you're... Do you think any of those congregants, do you think people that, that really listen to him, do you thinking that they're they're gonna have they're gonna find their sufficiency in Jesus Christ alone because of his suit or cars or house? I don't think so. 
My anger isn't directed at my neighbors. It's not those that are being taken by this. It's, it's Jesus' anger. He's not directing it at the pilgrims who are buying the sheep and pigeons and exchanging their money. It's, it's at those who are selling it and handling the currency. His, ang- his anger is directed at them and so is mine about this, those who push this health, wealth, prosperity, gospel that's ruining lives. Not just in our community, but around the world. They're exporting this. To the poorest parts of the world, to parts, to large parts of Africa and Asia. It's just awful. It's awful. And there's mega churches that make it on TBN and there's tiny little churches that are all over our area. They're just, that are, that are, that are, have taken this up and these churches that should exist for the worship and the fame of Jesus Christ, they're being hijacked. Hijacked. And, 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 and God's worship, God's name, His glory is being robbed. Hijacking is taking something hostily that doesn't belong to you so that you can use it for your own, own ends, selfish ends. And this is what's happening with the church, with the Bible. And it's ugly. And, okay, that's what the religious elite in, elite in Jesus' day were doing. With the temple, they were taking what didn't belong to them. They were taking what they did not own. What they did not have authority over. And they were forcing it to to do what they wanted it to do to serve their own selfish ends. They were hijacking God's worship. And Jesus says, that is enough. That's enough. He drives them out. And his whip opposes anything that distracts from God's worship, from God's agenda. But lest we feel good about ourselves, unless we look down our long noses at, with righteous indignation at others only, um, I want you to just think for a second about the ways in which God's worship can be hijacked right here. And, and just a couple statements. That true worship can be hijacked whenever we make it about something other than God. That's what it is. It, worship in Israel became about convenience, money, nationalism, politics, greed, but not God. They had all the stuff of worship, all the holy hardware, all the temple, the law, prophets, the, the, the God talk, the sacrifices, but the Lord was just pushed to the periphery. I can just say we, we can, we, we gotta be careful here because we can have the right stuff. I mean, it's good. Bible knowledge, Bible institute, expository preaching. Christian books and debt-free facilities and large missions budget. I mean, I'm thankful for every one of those things. And yet, it doesn't mean that God is necessarily the blazing center of our church and of our lives. I'm saying worship can be hijacked when it's when that's the case. Another way worship can be hijacked. True worship can be hijacked when we hide the true God from the world. Again, remember where all this is happening in the, in the court of the Gentiles. It's where proselyte believing Gentiles can go and worship the true God. And it's where unbelieving Gentiles can go and can observe and it's a witness to them. It's a witness to the nations. They can look over that four and a half foot high wall and see the, the worship of God and that he's to be regarded as holy. But if there was a Gentile that could possibly squeeze into the temple this day, if they could make it in with all of the madness what do you think they thought? Do you think they thought, wow, this is a glorious God. This is, this is nothing like the God, the gods of my nations. 
They probably thought, this is exactly like the pagan gods from my hometown. And, and that's it. What makes this, one of the things that makes it so hard is that what this says about the true God, the one true God. I think this is part of Jesus' outrage. It obscured who God truly is from the nations. And what do our lives, what is our church, what, is it, what does it communicate to the watching world? Do they see our God as just a different version of theirs? Yes, they have God of money, so do we, but ours just is expressed differently. God of self. Yeah, maybe they defend self very violently or in certain ways. We defend it maybe politically. What, what, what are we communicating? We can, God's worship can be hijacked when we hide the true God and His glory and His greatness and His grace from the world. All right, back to the scene. All right, we got to move forward. We'll pick it up next week is what we're going to end up doing. Um, the disciples are standing there, and they're no doubt just staggered by what they've seen from their Lord. Jesus is probably still breathing hard after driving these animals and these folks out of the temple, whip still in hand. And then the Holy Spirit brings Psalm 69, 9 to the mind of the disciples. It's a psalm about David, but it has prophetic fulfillment here in Christ. Psalm 69.9, verse 17 of John 2. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Consumed, to be eaten up with it. He, Jesus is eaten up with zeal for God's glory, for God's house. This is what explained Oh, to be like Christ. Oh, to have this kind of... Truly righteous anger. To become angry at the things that anger our Savior. We should be passionate people, church. Most of us are very good at getting angry. (laughs) Aren't we? Um, We get angry at the wrong things. And we get angry in the wrong ways. Um, We get angry, very angry, when our personal rights are violated. And we take the social media. We get very angry when our name is drugged through the mud and we retaliate with gossip. We get very angry when our schedule is interrupted. Sunday afternoon nap, perhaps. (laughs) And we yell at our kids. We get very angry when our personal preferences aren't shared and appreciated by others. So we get cold towards people and withdraw from them. We, We get anger. But, but yet we can yawn when God's name is tarnished. And may the Lord grow in us this kind of response. We see his name blaspheme. So the lion roars. Secondly, the lion raises. And we're just going to be brief here. I'm not going to say much here. John explains these verses for us. But we see is that he will raise himself from the dead to show his absolute superiority. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They're asking, show us some credentials, Jesus. Show us a sign that you have the right to do this. Who do you think you are? Do you think you own this place? What right do you have to come in and do these things? And Jesus is saying, yes, I do own this place. It's my father's house. So he answers them. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple you want to sign, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, they don't get Jesus' reference here. 
They say, verse 20, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, it's understandable they don't catch Jesus' reference. I don't think Jesus intended for them to catch this. He's saying truth, but he's saying it cryptically. He's not ready to lay all his cards face up on the table for them. It's not his time to suffer. His hour has not yet come uh, to go ahead and go to the cross and to die. And so, But he's going to give them this greatest sign of his death and resurrection. But not even the disciples catch the symbolism here. They miss it. And it's and later they remember verse 22 again. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. So the lion is raised. He raises. He raises. He has power. He doesn't just shout and make a scene. He has power over even death. So is Jesus a lamb? Absolutely. Is he a lion? Absolutely. Is he gentle and full of love? Yes. Is he, is he zealous and full of anger? Yes. And if you're still comfortable with that side of Jesus, not that there is a side of Jesus, that's not how it works. But consider just two more displays of anger and then we'll go to the table. We'll sing and go to the table. One, there's future judgment that's coming. In Revelation chapter 6, this is the, the, this is when the future tribulation judgment begins. Revelation 6 verse 14, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is the vision that Jesus gives to John of this future day of judgment. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great and for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand from the wrath of the lamb. That's crazy notion, isn't it? I mean, because Jesus became a lamb to pay for sins, not not to judge us. But when he returns, those who have not believed in him will face the wrath of the lamb. Right now we proclaim that grace of the Lamb who died to take away the sin of the world. But for those who spurn that grace, it's just this unthinkable reality that awaits. But as God's Lamb today, He offers life to those who will believe in Him. If you've not trusted in Him, you can escape this future day of wrath. There's another display of anger and it's It's an old rugged cross. And this isn't anger that issues from Jesus. This is anger that's directed at Jesus. He's suffering the righteous wrath of the Father because of our sin. And he dies on the cross. He bore our punishment. Not his own. And because he faced that wrath of God, we don't have to. We sing the song often and it's the chorus. Till on the cross that Jesus, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin was laid on him. Here in the death of Christ I live. The wrath of God was satisfied when Jesus bore our sins on the cross. That's great news. We're saved from wrath by wrath in a sense. In this great demonstration of love. What a mix of truths. 
And here's the great thing. I just want you to see his last truth, the thought as we go to the table. When Jesus died, one of the things that happened was the veil of the temple. The veil of the, the temple that Jesus defended so ferociously in this scene. That temple, that veil of the temple was ripped in two. And the Lord, in a sense, just vandalized the temple that he's defending here. So that the way to God could be opened up to us. Oh, that's great. And so this is one of the things I want us to remember as we come to the table today. Let's pray and we're going to sing in response to his word. And then we're going to worship together as we eat and drink at the table together. And remember Jesus' work absorbing that anger for us. Father, thank you for... This picture we have of our Savior. And I pray that our minds would be enlarged and our hearts, the affections of our hearts would be, would be grown to, to, to value and to appreciate and to embrace and to um, love our Savior as He has revealed Himself to us. And we, we are thankful that we have a Savior who's a, lo- a lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And we're, we're thankful we have a Savior who's a lion and who roars. And it will set all things right. So may you move among us now, God, even as we come and as we remember Christ together at the table, as we sing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.